Yes, well, that's why I'm calling to confirm that. And before I forget, how in the blazes does one pronounce Loganiaceae? Oh, right, as I thought. Goodness, this is a grim one, isn't it? And you say they specifically asked for me? It's odd, though, right? People don't normally associate the name Forsyth Mercer with plants, even poisonous ones. Still, given the amount of money they're offering, I assume they know what they're doing. As do you, I suppose. A timely reminder of why I keep you around as my agent. Unlike this one I'm working on now. The No Sleep Podcast. Horror Fiction. And not even their public Halloween special. I'm stuck behind... What is it? Season Pass. I thought they had people who handled things like this. Yes, that Cummings fellow, that's right. Okay, fine, fine. Yes, I am a regular listener. And yes, I was very excited when David reached out to me. Sometimes I forget that you have access to all my emails, not just the ones you send on my behalf. But yes, yes, I appreciate the opportunity. Anyhow, lovely as always to speak to you again, Lils. You really are in the top five agents I've had. Ciao, kisses. Fine, top three. Now, good night. Well, I suppose I'd better actually get this done then. It's only a day or so late. Or a week. But I am a classically trained actor, I'll have you know. I also may be a little... a little drunk. <laughs> but it is Halloween. All Hallows ween. What is that for, if not to get a little merry, keep the candy ball on standby, and guest host a podcast? <laughs> And before you say, excuse me, Mr. Mercer, if I'm listening to this on Halloween, then surely, surely it was not Halloween when you recorded it, and thus that pool of candy must be for you and you only. Then let me tell you this, let me tell you this, you little ingrate millenniumal zoomer gen hex whatever. <sighs> Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. In our first tale, we're reminded that while demons, ghouls, and serial killers may be the most celebrated of all Hallows horrors, there is one group abroad on Halloween nights that can be the most unholy terrors of all. I speak, of course, of children. Ah, but in this tale shared with us by Arthur Marcus Demander, we learn of an organization whose job it is to remind parents of the consequences should their offspring be unruly. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin and my good pal, David Cummings. 
So if you have kids on this creepiest day, then pray that an email will not come your way. It could mean that your parenting isn't top-notch, and thus you must hear from the fearsome Witch Watch. Two, Abigail Abrams, C.C. Adam Ailes, plus 1,572 additional recipients. From Madam Olivia Littleton, Office of Probationary Halloween Assignments. Subject, Discipline. Flagged, Urgent. Dear Parent, If you are receiving this message, you have been added to my list. I'm afraid I have unfortunate news, and I shall need you to take action, as described below, at once. Please note, this is not a prank. This is not a joke. Do not reply to this email. Do not report this email. While this email remains open, any attempt to screenshot or photograph your screen with an external camera will result in the immediate implementation of consequences. Be further advised that your print capability has been temporarily disabled. I've been at this for 118 years. Best not to fuck with me. Now, please read the following carefully, as any failure to comply will be met with a summons. Oh, and do try to commit as much of it to memory as you can, won't you? This email will self-delete precisely 66 seconds after you scroll through to the bottom. There won't be a trace of it left behind to be found anywhere other than the squishy gray hard drive between your ears, so I suggest you power that up right now. I regret to inform you that your daughter or son has been placed on witch watch. That is to say, your beloved, underparented progeny has been reported for misconduct on Halloween's past. Reasons for this referral could have involved any number of possible infractions, the most common of which include, but are not limited to, stealing candy from other children, jack-o'-lantern smashing, egging houses, leaving flaming paper bags of shit on neighbors' porch steps, that kind of thing. I regret I cannot be more specific, and I do apologize for the form letter, but I am sure you can understand and appreciate that my list is quite long these days. I assume you already know that your child is quite the asshole. No, don't be offended. Assholes come in all ages, shapes, and sizes. Perhaps you thought to keep the asshole nature of your child to yourself. A secret just between the two of you. It is now a matter of record and all appropriate agencies have been consulted prior to referral to my office. It is my unpleasant duty to notify you that this year, your child's Halloween privileges have been placed under suspension. This means no trick-or-treating. In the event your child is 13 years old or older, they've had their share of that anyway and spent most of their energy on tricks that are out of bounds in any case. No parties, no gatherings, 
no company. Come to think on it, no fun of any kind. Make that little shit of yours sit and think, and perhaps next year this won't be necessary. Warning! Any failure to comply with the above may result in your child receiving a Class 3 curse on the morning of November 1st. Class 3 curses include, but are not limited to, untreatable and recurring night terrors, self-perpetuating and unwashable skunk stink, or a simple case of incessant, uncontrollable and unfiltered blabbermouth. Oh, but the last one is almost fun, as those who receive it are incapable of speaking anything other than the truth for the duration, nor of restraining themselves from speaking any thought that enters their miserable, underdeveloped little minds. You'll learn so much. Consider, which will your child receive? It could be any of them. It could be more than one. I'm not telling. Anyway, Class 3 curses typically run their course within one complete lunar cycle, but may vary from subject to subject and do not result in permanent injury, scarring, or malformation. Warning! If your child not only breaks one of these restrictions, but also engages in activities similar to those that resulted in her or him being referred to my office in the first place, a Class 2 curse may be in order. Class 2 curses may include, but are not limited to, spontaneous and repeated cracking of the fingernails and toenails, Progressive and incurable interior oral fungus with dental rot. Advanced and irritable swelling of the face. Complete with explosive self-regenerating pustules. Or Narcissus Bite Syndrome. An insistent and insatiable desire to chew one's own flesh until it bleeds. Only one Class 2 curse may be imposed upon any subject. But do take my word, one is enough. These curses, too, generally peter out in a month or so. But the damage done is damage done. And the natural side effects and trauma tend to... linger. Most unpleasant. Do try to discourage your child from any misbehavior that may result in a Class 2 curse. First-class curses are not employed in the correction of Halloween infractions. These are usually purchased, not freely bestowed, and are employed mainly in the pursuit of justice or revenge. Also, they are not my particular area of expertise, there is no need to get into first-class curses here, but there are worse things than being cursed, my dear. Under no circumstances is your child to be apprised of your receipt of this email. We have had instances in the past of retaliation against those who are believed to have reported misbehavior to our office. An utterly ridiculous supposition since bullied children and hapless parents who stamp out flaming bags of shit 
have no better idea of how to contact us than you do. Halloween, as you know, is a night when the dead walk and the witches fly. When goblins and ghost sheets easily infiltrate bands of trick-or-treaters. When the black cat familiars of my coven sisters stalk the shadows of suburban streets. Those of us who have an interest in Halloween being celebrated as intended have our ways of knowing these things. Nevertheless, we have had these instances of so-called retaliation. Therefore... Warning! In the event that the child under probation lashes out in any way against those that she or he has already wronged in the past... This office shall take custody of the offending whelp for a period of service not to exceed twelve months, but no fewer than three. Be advised that there is absolutely zero chance of your precious, malicious little halfwit escaping this consignment, as we have several tried and true methods of acquisition. <laughs> It could be a simple sleepwalking spell. Your spoiled, insufferable brat may believe herself to have awakened when she has not. Or he may be simply compelled from afar in the way a knowledgeable witch may direct, say, a zombie. The child will, thinking herself awake, or hearing himself commanded, slip quietly through a bedroom window or stealthily through the halls of your own home, thinking the school bus is outside. But that will be our bus, and your child will ride it to Littleton Lane alone. Or perhaps, months down the line, your child will be playing outside with friends. It might even be done at a company party or a church picnic. Make no mistake... Churches don't mean fuck all to us. I could pipe holy water through my bidet and seriously not be able to tell the difference. It could be any time, anywhere. During the period of consignment, your child, based on her or his personal profile, will serve in the form of an imp or goblin or homunculus and perform tasks sufficiently menial and servile to put them in their proper place until the term of sentence is complete. No, don't ask yourself, what kind of tasks does she mean? If you're one of those parenting types who does your children's laundry after their tenth birthday, best for you not to know. Should your child merit this particular punishment... Appropriate arrangements will be arranged in advance for you to reconcile their disappearance with nosy authority types. We've done it all a thousand times before, my sweet. It's no big deal, and your child will be returned to you in the due course of time. Provided, of course, your child renders good service. They almost always do. And we almost never have repeat offenders beyond this stage of our program. When we do, of course, we have no choice left but to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> the 
Thankfully, there are very few among us who desire such fare, minus the cats who are partial to the entrails when diced or cubed. And none of those witches work for the Office of Halloween Probation Assignments. Nevertheless, I do know the ones who go in for such things, and they pay top dollar. Really, it's best to just avoid a sentence of consignment and do what we tell you. Explain to your child that your own local police department, via their neighborhood watch, has compiled a list of suspected Halloween offenders, and she or he has made the list. You are furious. It is time for you to put your foot down. There, I said it. Lie. Just lie your fucking face off. Beats the alternative, yes? Your child has done wrong. Your child will take this time out and hopefully learn from it. Halloween, after all, is when we celebrate childhood and the dead together as one. It is a night when it is permissible to be both frightened and happy at the same time. Your child has lost sight of this. Your child misses the point. When children miss the point, it is on the grown-ups in their lives to teach. It is my sincere wish that no further action will be necessary. Be the mama bear. Take charge. And in so doing, protect your precious baby bear. And to all of the fathers on my list, grow a sack, why don't you? You're a parent. You're not running for office, and that adolescent asshat you're so proud of is too young to vote anyway. There now. When I started this year's letter, I thought to keep it quick, to the point, and punchy. Do you know I used to do these by hand and mail them out? My, how times have changed. Ah, but now we've come to the end of it. Quite a lot to think about on your end, I know. But honestly, when we get down to it, all you really need to remember is this. Do your job so we won't have to. Sincerely, Olivia Littleton. Office of Probationary Halloween Assignments. Check out my page on Etsy. Security for this email provided by Magitech Incorporated. Self-deletion of this email to commence in 66 seconds. 65. 64. 63. Ah, the early 80s. Back then, before I gracefully withdrew to work on voiceovers and documentaries, I was still a player in Hollywood. Slasher movies were at the height of their original popularity. And in this tale, shared with us by author Angela Campbell, we meet a group of teen girls who are so eager to watch a new slasher that they're willing to ditch our narrator to do 
do so. Performing this tale are Kristen D. Mercurio, Wafia White, Mary Murphy, Atticus Jackson, and my best bud, David Cummings. So book your tickets for the season of the witch, lest you find yourself walking home alone and risk encountering the Halloween Cat. sure we don't look stupid? If we're going to be dressed as the pink ladies from Greece, shouldn't we be coupled with guys dressed as the T-Birds? Take a chill pill, Catherine. We look great. Do you know how long my mom worked on these costumes for us? Besides, we'll probably run into some guys dressed as T-Birds at the party. Hopefully Rick will be there. Oh my god, I hate to tell you this, but Cameron said he and Rick were skipping the party to go see Halloween 3 tonight. No way! That sucks. Plus, I heard the movie sucks. Supposedly, it doesn't even have that guy in the white mask in it. How stupid. Michael Myers. What? The guy in the white mask? His name is Michael Myers. Whatever. (sighs) Do you know which theater they went to? You're not going to bail on this party so you can go stalk Rick at some lame movie. I am not stalking him. Oh, please. You're so obvious. Oh, yeah? As obvious as you mooning over Cameron? (laughs) At least I'm not following him around at some dumb movie. I will never forget Halloween that year. It was 1982 in Charleston, South Carolina, which, by the way, has a reputation for being one of the most haunted locations in America. Not that that matters. I'm still not sure what I encountered that night was, but I don't think it was a ghost. Or maybe it was, I'm not even sure it matters. All I know is that I almost died that night. And these days, when October 31st rolls around, I lock my door, turn off the lights, and wait for November 1st to arrive praying I don't ever see a black cat prowling nearby on Halloween again. Fine. Catherine, do you want to come with us to the stupid movie theater? I knew Cindy had a crush on Cameron, and Hillary practically swooned any time Rick came by. Suddenly, I felt like a third wheel, so I did what any good friend would do. Never mind I hadn't wanted to go to the party or do anything besides stay home and watch scary movies and binge on popcorn and candy that night. You know what? You guys go. I'm going to head back home. I'm not feeling all that great. But you have to come. This will be our last Halloween together before college. You guys go. Have fun. I'm going to walk home. I mean, I guess, if you're sure. Yeah, let me know how the movie is. My friends since elementary school wasted no time in bidding me farewell before turning course and jogging off, squealing in delight and excitement. Back in those days my parents would have killed me for walking home alone. Young Adam Walsh's death a couple of years earlier had struck terror in the hearts of parents across America, who suddenly believed all children were in danger of strangers. Sure, I was a high school senior, but the satanic panic was also starting to take root. Times were weird back then. (sighs) Charleston is full of cemeteries, many of them haunted, if legend is to be believed, and my route took me past a few. 
I suppose I was so used to them that they didn't faze me. I should have probably called my parents or my older brother to pick me up. But it was Halloween, and I wanted to see the kids in their cute little costumes. Dozens of small Casper the Friendly ghosts, Sesame Street characters, and Scooby-Doo's ran past me, much to my delight. As it got later, and the sky darkened, the trick-or-treaters became fewer until they all but disappeared. I suddenly realized how alone and vulnerable I was. That's when I first noticed the cat. Sleek and muscular, its fur was solid black, making it difficult to spot as it kept pace beside me along the stone wall that framed the cemetery to my right. I stopped, eager to see if it was friendly or feral. I reached out a hand and was rewarded by a menacing hiss. Whoa, fella, I just wanted to pet you. I remembered the Slim Jim I had stuck in my coat pocket in case I got hungry, and I pulled it out, breaking off a few pieces for the wary feline. I'm just going to sit this here on the wall, and you can eat it or not. The cat eyed the treat cautiously, but prowled up to it, sniffing and taking a tiny bite. Suddenly, it ate all of it as if it were starving, so I broke off more and gave it all I had. I reached to pet it, but it drew back and hissed again. It definitely wasn't friendly. I wish I had more to give, but that's all I've got. I'd take you home, but I don't think you want to go with me, so... Take care of yourself, okay? I began walking again, casting careful glances around me. My house was only a few blocks away at that point. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught sight of something small and black creeping along the other side of the wall, following me. That's when I heard the deep, growling voice near my ear. I spun around, but no one was there. The street behind me was eerily empty. I took sight of all my surroundings, but I saw no one. Only the black cat. Someone had sat a pumpkin on the wall, and its triangle eyes and sharp-toothed smile glowed, thanks to a burning candle inside its hollowed-out shell. The cat jumped on the ledge beside the Halloween decoration, and its yellow eyes seemed to glow along with it. Unnerved, I began moving again, my steps clicking harder against the cobblestone pathway as I turned down a road that would shorten my route home. A streak of black fur darted past me, so fast I barely noticed it. Hungry, hungry, hungry for young flesh. I did what the stupidest character in a horror movie would do, and slowed down to see if I could determine where the voice was coming from. Who's there? This isn't funny. (laughs) Run, little girl, run. The black cat jumped onto some garbage cans beside me. I swear it looked as if the creature was eyeing me as if I were its next meal. It swiped out at me and hissed, looking as ferocious as a predator ten times its size. Terrified, I ran in the opposite direction, running away from my home instead of toward it. The black cat gave chase. Nearby lampposts cast its enlarged shadow on the wall beside mine. It seemed to grow even larger, more monstrous as I ran, as if I were being pursued by a black panther and not a street cat. A third shadow appeared out of the corner of my eye, tall and looming behind both of us. Before I knew it, I found myself running through a graveyard lined with historic markers. Run! Run! It's fun. 
I found myself flailing forward as my heel got snagged on something, and I felt the breath leave my chest in a huff as I hit the ground. I tried scrambling to my knees, but a sharp pain revealed a piece of glass from a broken beer bottle stuck right above my kneecap. The pain was excruciating. I fell backward as I saw my pursuer close in on me. Crawling in reverse, I took in his dark mechanics jumpsuit, the bloody butcher knife gripped in his hand, and the familiar white mask covering his face. I had seen the first two Halloween movies with my older brother at the dive-in, a secret just between the two of us, and I'd recognize that costume anywhere. It had fueled my nightmares for months after seeing the horror films about an escaped mental patient stalking teenage babysitters. Only this didn't seem to be a costume. It looked like the real deal as he slowed his pace, realizing I couldn't easily get away. I screamed. My hands continued to walk me backwards until one of them sank into something warm, wet, and thick. Lifting my hand, I saw it was covered in blood. Turning, I saw a teenage girl's body dressed as a witch, her torso slashed and mutilated. I screamed again, hoping someone would hear me. <laughs> a black shape suddenly flew from the nearby shadows, launching itself at the killer. The black cat clung to the killer as the man slashed his knife upward, trying to dislodge the animal. Instead, the cat shifted quickly, and my assailant slashed at his own flesh, drawing blood. He yelled out in pain, even as the cat launched itself at his head. The man flailed wildly for several seconds as the feline clawed at his now-exposed face. As the cat sprang away, the man fell backward, and the sickening crack of his head meeting a nearby tombstone ended his groans and mumbling. He lay still and silent, even as I heard voices approaching. Everything okay over there? Over here! Help me! The black cat's body relaxed once it realized the man wasn't moving. Its yellow gaze met mine, and I don't know how to describe the communication that passed between us in those seconds before someone came to my side. Gratitude? Relief? Camaraderie? All I know is that I no longer feared the animal before me. It leapt onto a tombstone, gave me one last look, and disappeared. I've often wondered through the years if the cat was even real, but the police confirmed my story, thanks to the deep scratches and bites on the man's body. It turned out his name wasn't Michael Myers, and he was a human, as you or I, I think. Some details from that night seem to defy explanation. A copycat killer is what the press called him. A fan of the Halloween franchise who was so unhappy with the latest movie at the time, he'd snapped and killed a young woman named Cherry Tanner before I encountered him. Some people say black cats are bad luck, and others fear them for reasons I won't get into. As for me, I think they bring good luck. And if you show them some kindness, maybe they'll return the favor. What I do know is, if you see a black cat on Halloween, look around you. You're probably not alone. One thing I appreciate about being rich and famous is that I can afford to live in... Oh, you almost got me there. 
I'm not revealing where I live, because my point was that I reside somewhere without immediate neighbors, somewhere remote, very remote. And in this tale, shared with us by author Charlie Davenport, we're reminded of the dangers of trying to keep up with our adjacent associates. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Eddie Cooper, and Aaron Lillis. So design your Halloween decor for you not to outdo. Take it from Gene as he tells us about the witch in my yard. Paul Ryerson's house was always the brightest one on our block come Christmas time, and would remain so for at least the first week of the new year every year. On Easter Sunday, the entire extended Ryerson clan, which seemed to double in size every year, would appear in his backyard and spend hours searching for the brightly colored eggs and bags of candy he'd hidden for every third cousin's kid. On the 4th of July... His backyard was the spot to be in Lyons to see both the parade during the daylight hours and the fireworks come nightfall. From what I hear, and can smell every year, the man knows how to run a grill, too. (laughs) Hell, even on Earth Day, when the town council awards a blue ribbon for the best garden in town, Ryerson reaped the rewards of weeks of preparation hauling bags of mulch, planting flat after flat of perennials, and setting up the fanciest Home Depot water features. I, and I truly don't think I can stress this enough, I hate Paul Ryerson. I hate the way he made it impossible to park in my own driveway come the Yuletide without some slack-jawed Yahoo asking if I'd mind them leaving their car in front of it. While they take in the sights of the miniature North Pole Mr. Ryerson sets up the day after Thanksgiving. I hate the little Ryerson spawn climbing over my back fence every year and stomping all over the roses, despite the fact that their Uncle Polly has never once hidden anything there. I hate the sounds of his guests getting drunker and drunker on Independence Day, having to stay up all night soothing my rescue dog Doozy who was already pissing herself after the fireworks. I hate our nearly annual exchange at my front door when he finishes his latest batch of homebrew IPA and for the umpteenth time offers me a couple of bottles and me for the umpteenth time having to pull my AA chip out and... You know what? Above all else, I hate his heidly ho pastel sweater-wearing, isn't this just the best time of year, year-round bullshit. But when the leaves started changing and I saw Paul coming out of his garage with tub after plastic tub, I actually developed a twinge of excitement in my stomach. From the bins, he produced papier-mâché skulls and bright plastic LED jack-o'-lanterns with big, leering black voids serving as their mouths. Styrofoam tombstones were quickly fashioned into a city-of-the-dead graveyard. 
Then three rubber masks, Dracula, Wolfman, and the Mummy, were fitted over flannel shirts and old dungarees filled with newspaper and hoisted onto long bamboo poles propped up to glare out at any trick-or-treaters that might wander up past the award-winning rhododendrons that lined his walkway. I was just heading to the store, sliding my key into the door of my beat-to-hell rambler when I heard his chipperer-than-thou voice calling out to me. He swept his arm across the yard like Vanna White in her prime. Hey, Gene, what do you think? All gonna be coming over there, aren't they? I slid into the driver's seat without waiting for a reply. In the rear view, I saw Ryerson raise a confident thumbs up in my direction. Mm, Not this year, asshole. (laughs) The Galleria had been a major hub around here but had been closing down store by store for at least a decade. The stock was long gone, the locals all sporting half-price pantsuits and playing with beyond-their-means power tools. Then it was the fixtures, you know, your clothing racks and the lighting. Now all the old retail Hulk had left to offer was the weird stuff. By the time I left the mall's parking lot, I was $75 lighter and I was making the first of many trips back to my house. The back of my SUV filled with the seeds of Paul Ryerson's social downfall. The plan for what I was going to do with all of this formed in my head the minute I'd read the Craigslist ad. I pulled out the first mannequin, smooth and naked as a jaybird, and faced her out towards Paul's yard. It would be another two weeks until the trick-or-treaters were roaming the streets, but a couple of the neighborhood kids were already taking notice as they passed by on their bicycles. I gave them a hearty wave. By nightfall, there were candy cane lamps lining my walkway, a dozen or so children's mannequins, formerly of a store called Half Pints, and the pièce de résistance, a female mannequin, dressed in the best Wicked Witch outfit I could find. On top of her head rested a large-brimmed, pointy black hat that cast a shadow covering the smooth area where eyes would have been on a human face. The children, all roughly the size of your average toddler, were dressed in the finest clothing that could be scrounged from the Goodwill, and were turned towards the witch, arrayed in a semicircle around her, all held fast by gardening stakes I'd lashed them to. A dozen or so hard plastic masks completed their look. Rising above all of this were the gingerbread walls that had previously served as Santa's workshop, When the mall had charged holiday shoppers 15 bucks a pop to take their picture with an old white bearded man and a rented reindeer, I still had to arrange the spotlights for the yard and set up the smoke machines and the loudspeakers, which would be playing loops of nursery rhymes on the night of. But I had to admit, my Hansel and Gretel themed house already looked pretty good. I was tired. My office gig didn't require all that much physical labor, and the hauling of the material and the swinging of the hammer to put the plywood walls of the witch's cabin up had taken their toll. The finishing touches could wait for another day. I had the urge for a beer for the first time in years, but felt satisfied with the coke I pulled out from the fridge. I took a hearty slurp of the sugary stuff and looked out my front window. From there, I imagined I could see fear behind the slits of each child's mask something already telling them that it was a bad idea to have intruded into this old lady's yard, promise of sweets or no. 
I finished the can and, buoyed by the rush of glucose and caffeine, I decided that I had enough energy to treat myself to a long, hot shower. I let Doozy in from the backyard and plopped some wet food into her dish before heading upstairs. After the water had eased out the worst of the aches and pains and I pushed down a couple of ibuprofens, I came back downstairs to watch some TV. I found Doozy staring out the front window. You looking at our visitors, girl? I stroked Doozy's back and her head whipped around. She let out a low growl before registering that it was me. I looked out between the blinds. Is something actually out there? I immediately saw something was wrong, but it took a moment for my brain to catch what my eyes were already taking in. The witch was bending over, just ever so slightly. It gave the impression of someone allowing their shoulders to slump forward. Irritated, I opened the front door, stopping only to grab a flashlight and walked barefoot across the lawn to inspect her, the autumn chill working its way into my toes almost immediately. There was nothing wrong, nothing obvious. Both of her feet were still planted firmly on the platform underneath the hem of her dress, and the ground was level all around it. I ran my fingers over her body reasoning that there might be a crack or some structural damage I hadn't noticed before to account for this change in posture. But there was none that I could find. With a sudden realization of how I must have looked to the neighbors, I convinced myself that I must have imagined it. The next day, in the Sunday morning light, the stoop was still there, my witch leaning forward to leer at something in the distance. I ate my breakfast and got started on my project. As I ran the extension cords and hung lights, I was very aware of the witch's presence. The thing had no eyes, but I couldn't shake the feeling that it was watching me. I walked past it, a speaker cradled in my arms, and despite my best efforts not to look at it, I noticed that her limbs were longer than I thought they were, her slim fingers stretching down past her waist the sun throwing their shadows across the lower half of her dress. I chuckled to myself a dozen or so times, convincing myself that it was just my own foolishness. Then, a cold presence would make itself felt when I turned my back on her, and I would turn and try and figure out exactly what detail about her was unnerving me so. I was in the process for about the eighth or ninth time that day when a voice from the street managed to startle me. Hey, Gene, looking good. Paul stood there, hands on his hips, nodding slowly like a king bestowing praise. I set down my spool of lights. Thank you. You're always pushing the boat out, so I thought I'd give it a try. I see. I see that. My neighbor's gaze slid over every inch of the display. Ryerson nodded approvingly at the gingerbread house, the candy canes, the children... The collection of plywood gravestones I added that morning. A single animatronic skeleton was popping its head up from behind the largest of them, leering out with malevolence in its rolling eyes. Where? He stopped on the witch, a momentary look of dismay crossing his blue sky features. He broke away from her and fixed me with his store-bought smile. Where'd you get all the stuff? I told him about the ad and I saw a light of recognition as he glanced at the former Winter Wonderland set. I mentioned the number of online sites from which I'd grabbed the various fog machines, spotlights, and projectors that were still to be set up. 
I showed him where the trick-or-treaters would come in and how I'd spaced out the children's mannequins to suggest a path to the giant bowl of candy I planned to set out in front of my witch. He scrunched up his face disapprovingly. No good? I hated myself a bit when I realized how much I wanted his approval, if not envy, of my plan. No, it's great. You might want to lay them out a little different. Right now they look like they're giving her a wide berth. I looked around and I saw that he was right. In my end of the evening days, I thought I'd laid out my little ones in a snaking zigzag, but they were in fact pushed back in a rough semicircle around the witch's house, looking like they were backing away towards the property line. I thanked him for the advice, and he once again expressed that everything looked great and he couldn't wait to see it when it was all finished. I felt myself warming towards him a bit a buried memory surfacing of the welcome-to-the-neighborhood basket that had been delivered to our door with a polite knock when we'd moved in a few years ago. He leaned in, and in a confidential whisper told me that the whole neighborhood was glad to see me getting in the holiday spirit. We've all been kind of worried about you, you know, since Catherine moved out. And with that, five years of bitterness and resentment surged back. He strode out of my yard back towards his own house, the one that he shared with his wife and children. I threw all my free time into the yard. More tombstones, fog juice, and animatronics were ordered. Rush delivery charges were paid. I was going to make sure that my display drew every ounce of attention away from Ryerson's, even if it drove me into exhaustion and credit card debt. My neighbor's comment burned in my chest as I drank my morning coffee. Since Catherine moved out. As the display grew and more ghouls lurked around the candy canes, more of the neighborhood kids were tugging on their parents' arms or gesturing to their friends as they rode by on their bikes. With a giddy sense of anticipation, I ordered several bags of full-sized candy bars to hand out on the night. I also caught Ryerson trying not to look at my display as it took over every corner of the yard. Screw you and your pity, buddy. At first, I relished the attention the display drew as it got closer and closer to completion. For the first time since Catherine had taken the kids and gone to her mother's place, never to return, I felt seen. I wasn't the fall-down drunk or the angry divorcee that had nothing or nobody to care for. Suddenly, I was the guy with the gingerbread house in his yard, and the kids that came by were going to get enough sugary goodness from me to rot their teeth right out of their heads. But as the days went by, I noticed that some of the kids were tossing nervous glances over their shoulders as they passed by their parents jumping at the wind creaking through the trees as they walked the family dog for his nightly poo. I remember thinking I needed to take Doozy for a walk. I'd tried to take her out a couple of times the night before, but she wouldn't go out the front door and hid behind my chair whenever the leash was produced. She'd been doing her business exclusively in the backyard for the last couple of days. Suppose I should have taken that as a sign. Through all of this, the witch just observed the passers-by with her indifferent, eyeless stare. I could feel her waiting for the big night. It was a week to the day when the first kid disappeared. No one else seemed to notice, 
No cry of alarm went up around town. No friendly police officers appeared at my door to ask a series of awkward questions. But I knew. The little one in the denim overalls and the devil mask, the one I'd placed right in front of my witch, was gone. I tried to put it down to a miscount. I'd placed 11 when I thought it was 12, that was all. Then the next one vanished. A chalk-white ragamuffin with perennially stiff pigtails poking out from underneath the bright red clown wig I'd given her. After day three, more of them were gone. I called the cops, but even in a town this size, they had other things besides some Halloween decorations being stolen to worry about. I wondered if it was kids, just some middle school punks enjoying some recreational vandalism. Of course, it occurred to me that it could be Ryerson... I had built the thing to spite him after all. Maybe it worked. But no. As much as I wanted to think I heard him, Paul Ryerson was a happy man with a full life. He'd let me have this crazy show on Halloween night, and hell, he'd probably be happy for me. Glad to see a moment of happiness for good old Gene Driscoll. Then I was working on the display one night after work, trying to make up for the losses, and I heard a laugh. It was a short, sharp exclamation. A snort. The kind of involuntary thing someone makes during a moment's silence for the dead. The kind of laugh that just slips out before you even know it's happening. I was scanning my yard, turning in slow circles, trying to will my eyes to take in as much as possible in the darkness, when I heard something topple behind me. I spun on my heel and splayed out on the ground, was one of the remaining toddler mannequins. Grumbling, I trudged over to it, the pole that was supposed to hold it up standing and alone. There was something odd about the way it had fallen. It was on its belly, its arms pivoted in their sockets, allowing the body to press flat against the cold earth. He was facing the street, his arms outstretched like like he was trying to... Hey, Gene. I spun back around. The voice had been right behind me, and I felt a pounding rising in my chest. There was no one in the yard, at least not that I could see. My surly air of impatience covered the fear that was driving my heart violently against my ribcage. What? Who is it? Hey, Gene. The voice was calm and conversational, as someone needing just a minute of your time to discuss the weather. It was hard to place in location, echoing around my yard sounding in equal parts like it could be coming from the trees behind my house or across the street. Hey, Gene. I dug out my phone for light as I walked towards the voice, calling out to whoever it was, just like I'd never seen a horror movie in my life. Paul? For some reason, I thought it might be the Holiday King himself, come by to see if his lonely old neighbor needed a last-minute pair of extra hands to get everything ready. It was going to be my neighbor, and I would be happier to see him than I'd been to see anyone in years. But there was no answer. The yard around me was silent. No cars passed by out on the road that, despite being only several dozen feet away, felt like another country that I'd never be able to reach in time. In time for what? Hey, Gene. It's coming from inside the gingerbread house. I nearly laughed out loud despite myself. There was no way I was going in there. At least, that's what I told myself, until I heard a single high-pitched yelp come from within it. It was the same one she made every time she got vaccinated at the vet. Doozy! 
How had she gotten out? What was she doing back there? The plywood door felt impossibly heavy against my hands as I opened it, and the light from my phone simply didn't penetrate into the corners of the facade. I should have been able to see my house now. The back of the thing was wide open. I should have been able to see the garage, long ago converted in case Kathy's mom ever needed to come live with us. But the darkness just stretched on forever, and I couldn't help but think of an ancient tomb. Then the door slammed shut behind me, knocked into place by some errant wind or malicious hand. It was then, in that sudden lightless void, that I realized I hadn't seen the witch when I'd come in. The voice came again, mere inches from my face. Hey, Gene. I ran back towards the door, the light bouncing up and down in a blackness that went on for far too long. I had been less than a foot away, and I was running like I was in the final leg of a mad dash with the finish line in sight, but all I encountered was cold air rushing past my limbs and face. Then, suddenly, it was there, the door appearing in front of me as if dragged into frame by an unseen hand, and in my panic, I didn't stop in time. I bounced off it hard and was sent sprawling onto my back. My shoulder blades screamed in agony against the sudden contact with the ground, and I let out a yelp. Thinking I had to move before the pain set in, I lurched back up to a sitting position, and in the weak light that came in around the gaps of the door, I could see a figure crouched down in front of me. On top of its head rested a large, brimmed, pointy hat. It was dark, and she had no eyes. I knew she had no eyes, but her hands had no trouble finding my face. Cold, hard, plastic hands rested against my cheeks her rigid thumbs stroking just under my eyes. She needs eyes. I remember thinking that, and I shut my own tightly knowing that it wouldn't stop those stiff, lifeless fingers if she thrust them into my sockets. Jean. Then a deafening silence descended. I held my breath and waited, and waited, and waited. When I finally dared to peek, like a toddler out from under the covers. She was gone, and the door was open. I looked across the street, and I could see Ryerson's yard had been destroyed. The papier-mâché skulls had been torn apart, shredded open to reveal newsprint and headlines from decades past. The plastic jack-o'-lanterns had all been flattened, trampled under many feet. The styrofoam tombstones had been reduced to puffs of non-biodegradable fluff sticking everywhere on my neighbor's flawlessly manicured lawn. Dracula, Wolfman, and the mummy were gone, decapitated from their flannel shirt bodies, their paper guts ripped out and strewn about with other gleefully produced debris. I had just noticed that the bamboo poles that had held up the trio had been snapped in half and driven through Ryerson's living room windows when the police arrived. They questioned me, of course, but my previous calls to them and my own display having suddenly disappeared took all suspicion off me. I nearly laughed in the officer's face as he took my statement when it occurred to me. My witch was gone, and she had taken the kids with her. And Doozy hasn't. Doozy. Doozy's gone. It's Halloween night, and while the gingerbread house still stands, both Ryerson's and my lights are off. Neither one of us seems to be in the holiday spirit. Still, I have a bowl of candy in front of me, 
just in case. You see, someone keeps knocking on my door. Someone willing to ignore the darkness on the path up to my front step. Someone that strides up to it with stiff, jerky movements. They're knocking right now, ringing hollow with each rap against the wood. I think they want something from me. And I'm hoping it's just a full-size Snickers. In our final tale, we find ourselves somewhere that even I have yet to visit, despite the number of global on-site documentaries I've taken part in filming. That's because this story takes place beyond the limited boundaries of planet Earth. In this tale, shared with us by author Manin Lyset, we find ourselves in the vast, haunted reaches of space. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, David Alt, Erica Sanderson, Jesse Cornett, Kyle Akers, Nicole Goodnight, and Eddie Cooper. So remember, in space, no one can hear you scream, especially if you don't have a mouth. Which is the case if you don't even have a head. So float away with the legend of Cryo Sleepy Hollow. Everyone knows about the hollows. It's a massive stretch of the galaxy that's so utterly dark, no light can penetrate. The few who have seen inside have spoken of a swirling, inky black substance coating every porthole. Yet, the even fewer who have been brave enough to attempt a spacewalk in the hollows reported a surprising amount of nothing save for an ever-increasing sense of dread and anxiety that quickly set in and forced them back into their ships. They said there was no liquid, no gas, no debris, nothing but an unsettling absence of light. There are a myriad of legends surrounding the hollows, as has been the case for countless generations whenever humans have faced dark and unknown places. Places like dense forests, abandoned buildings, or planet Axiom, where the sun is blotted out by a thick cloud of dust made from the remains of its inhabitants, which are rumored to have mysteriously disintegrated overnight a thousand years ago. Even in the era of starships, we seek light like a campfire, and from its protective halo, we tell stories of what might be beyond it. One such legend speaks of a black hole, one capable of eluding all scientific equipment, 
nested at the center of the hollows explaining away the disappearances of ships that have seemingly blipped out of existence in the earlier days of mapping the region. Others tell tales of massive creatures that swim through the blackness like sea serpents, occasionally making a ship their meal. Of the legends, there is none more popular or well-known as the story of the empty astronaut. Call it superstition or call it a learned precaution, but historians have attributed the reason for the practice of only passing through the hollows while in cryogenic sleep to the stories of the empty astronaut. It's said that the worst horrors happen to crews that choose to stay awake. They say after days in the darkness, crews will spot a distant speckle of light, like a mirage in the desert. They say the speckle is the ship's lights reflecting off the empty astronaut's visor, and once he has a ship in his sights, he will follow it, no matter how fast or slow, no matter what maneuvers are attempted. The empty astronaut will stalk a ship relentlessly, until ultimately forcing his way aboard. This is where the legend differs. Some say none have survived an encounter, and that these reports come from the ship's final distress messages. Others have claimed a friend of a friend knows a person who knows another who swears they've seen him. What everyone agrees on is this. There is no head behind the visor. And many ships have been found at the outskirts of the hollows, their crews long dead, their heads missing, as well as one, always just a single crewmate unaccounted for, along with their spacesuit. Scientists have argued that exposure to the hollows causes certain individuals to go berserk, and that the stories inform how they kill, that the empty astronaut isn't real. Whatever the case, it has long since been determined that the safest way to traverse the hollows is for a crew to enter cryogenic sleep and remain dormant until they've reached the other side. That's how it's been done for hundreds of years, and how it will continue to go for hundreds more. And this is where our story truly begins. On the Terry Union Station, on the populated side of the hollows, while I will recount it to the best of my abilities from eyewitness accounts and hearsay, I will also rely on recorded uh, video and audio from both the station and the ships involved. Ike Crane is the hapless protagonist of this story, and on the day the distress beacon came through, he was enjoying a quiet meal in the mess hall. He had the tall, scrawny, lanky proportions of a man who'd spent his life in space, and more importantly, who'd never adjusted the synthetic gravity to match that of his ancestral home. A few rows down, Abe, captain of the brawny hull, was the polar opposite. His early days on a planet with heightened gravity and a life well-fed and full of manual labor had left him a strong, muscular man, if a bit short. He and his rambunctious crew laughed loudly amongst themselves, periodically attracting Ike's glare. Red alert. Red alert. All available personnel reported to conference room 501A. I repeat, 
All available personnel report to conference room 501A. Red alert. Red alert. What the blazes is going on? Come on, boys. Let's go see what this is about. Ike quickly shoveled the rest of his food into his mouth while the brawny Hull's crew formed the disorderly tangle by the elevators. With a ding, the doors opened and they filed inside. Ike ran to join them, but the doors began to shut. He was only a moment too late, and as the doors slid nearly shut, Abe shot Ike a questionably sincere, apologetic look. I guess I'll get the next one. Red alert. Red alert. All available personnel report to conference room 501A. I repeat, all available personnel report to conference room 501A. Red alert. Red alert. I know, I know. Can't this elevator go any faster? The temporary torture came to an end, and he eventually joined Abe and a few others in the conference room. A union rep, wearing a grave expression on their face, paced back and forth as they waited another few minutes for more stragglers to show up. Once satisfied, they began. Thank you for coming, everyone. We just received a distress signal from the Katharina Research Station. We're looking for volunteers to assist. Of course, you'll be fairly compensated, and any work you were previously assigned will be postponed without penalty for the duration of the rescue operation. The Katharina Research Station was a small but invaluable station on the uninhabited side of the hollows, the sole purpose of which was to study the strange phenomenon. It was a permanent fixture placed on the shore of the narrowest point of the River of Darkness. Its position nearly mirrored that of the Terry Union stations, so that if anything were to happen to the former, the latter could come in aid within a reasonable time frame. The Terry Union station sent supplies to them on a regular basis and acted as a vector between them and the rest of the inhabited galaxy. Do you have any details about exactly what is going- Brawny Hall is ready to go at your command. Whatever you need, we're here. You don't even know what happened yet. Thank you, Captain Abraham. We're going to need all hands on deck. The station suffered significant damage to its air converters. Most of their crew was put under cryogenic stasis to preserve oxygen, but they're in desperate need of parts before their oxygen reserves are depleted. How long can they hang on for? Best estimate, no more than two weeks. Well, that's fine. The Brawny Hull's the fastest ship in the Union. I'll get those parts there in half that time. I appreciate your enthusiasm, but we don't have any spares on hand. They've been ordered, but they'll take a few days to arrive. In the meantime, we need everyone prepared to launch at a moment's notice. Excuse me, um, may I ask a question? Yes, new guy. What's your name again? I, 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 Ike Crane, sir. Ike. Got it. What's your question? What exactly is the point of recruiting us if a cargo ship is already on the way? Can't they continue directly to Katharina Research Station? <laughs> You've never ridden in a cargo ship, huh? They're not designed for missions like this. <laughs> They're big, slow, and clunky. My ship can fly circles around them any day. Most importantly, they're too big to dock at the research station. It's only designed to receive small to medium vessels like yours. Ah, I see. It wasn't that Ike didn't want to go. The money was a great incentive, but he was the cautious type. He wouldn't dip his toes in water without checking for sharks first. 
even on sharkless planets. The Union Rep went on to describe their plan in great detail, which I will spare you. Suffice to say, multiple ships would depart for the Katharina Research Station, each carrying the parts needed to fix the air converters. In the far corners of the galaxy where anything could go wrong at any time, you always had a backup, a backup for the backup, and a backup for the backup's backup. In all, five ships would launch, including Abe on the Brawny Hull and Ike on the Gamma Ray. The first to reach the Katharina Research Station would earn a hefty bonus. The others would get regular wages. Furthermore, the crews of all five vessels would spend the next few days learning how to perform the repairs in case the worst happened to the still-awake engineers on the station. Being ready was critical. These researchers' lives were some of the most valuable in the galaxy. Later that evening, the crews were in the mess hall, drinking and dancing and having a good time. Ike had a book in his hands, but stole periodic glances towards the rest, suggesting he was eavesdropping. Did you hear about the malfunction on Marcella's ship on our last supply run? Something happened? The ship's computer pulled her out of cryosleep early because of a problem with the steering column or something. She didn't go into detail. Awake? In the hollows? Oh, God. I hope that never happens to me. She see anything? That's just it. She did. She said she focused on the repairs at first, but she had this weird feeling like something was watching her, you know? And then she looked out a portside window, and she saw a gleam in the distance. You can't. It looked like it was coming her way, but she couldn't tell. The ship left the hollows a few minutes later, so she couldn't tell if it was him. (laughs) I would have noped the hell out of there. That's not the worst part. Uh, It's not? She was curious about how the steering column had been damaged. It could have been anything. But it wasn't. Once she was docked and waited for them to unload, she reviewed the security footage leading up to her waking up. Don't say it. What? You don't know what I'm going to say? Yes, I do, and don't say it. She saw someone on her ship. An astronaut in an ancient spacesuit. God damn it. He stood, unmoving, in front of her cryopod, watching her for at least half an hour before he moved to the front of the ship. He left just a few minutes before she finally woke up. Imagine, just imagine what would have happened if the ship's computer had woken her up just a few minutes earlier. Stop! I'm getting the heebie-jeebies. That's why she transferred? I thought she wanted to be with her family or something. That's nothing. I've seen the empty astronaut once. In the flesh. What? It was a few years ago. He didn't board the ship. I didn't give him a chance. I was awake for, um... I can't remember anymore. It's not important, but I was awake. The sky was a swirling veil of darkness, and there I was, looking out into space, a drink in my hand and music blaring. The rest of my crew were safely asleep in their cryopods. It was... In fact, it was this very time of year. The hollows looked even darker than usual that day. And then, in the distance... I saw this tiny light. It's official. I'm not sleeping tonight. I switched from autopilot to manual and steered towards him. Towards the empty astronaut? Yikes. I wanted to see him. 
look him right in the eye. Show him I wasn't afraid. From across the room, Ike's meek voice broke through the chorus of gasps. Did you? Look him in the eye? Yeah, more or less. I flew towards him. He came at me at lightning speed. Then we stopped right in front of the ship. He seemed to hover there. I'm not sure how. I was still moving at light speed. His dark visor slowly retracted and I saw what was behind it. I saw the empty helmet staring back at me. Empty, yet somehow full of life. He reached for my ship. (laughs) Well, I wasn't about to put my crew in danger. I quickly steered the brawny hull away and flew off towards known space. He followed suit, or he tried to, but I was faster. I left him in my wake. (laughs) Amazing. Incredible. Poppycock. Excuse me? Poppycock, there's no such thing as headless astronauts. How would that even work? You can't move without a head. It must have been an, an old suit that got pulled into your micro orbit. Despite Ike's protests, he was visibly shaking and there was a quavering in his voice. Perhaps he was one of those people who enjoyed ghost stories but had to rationalize them away to sleep at night. He's real. I promise you that. I only survived the encounter thanks to my quick thinking and piloting skills. (laughs) I'm sure you wouldn't have been so lucky in my shoes. If you're right and he was alive, how do you suppose he survived out there for so long, hmm? He's a ghost. He's not a ghost, he's a demon. I think he's an alien. What? Think about it. He's seen us entering the hollows. I think he's trying to make contact with us. Maybe he's friendly, and maybe he's not. He tries to take on our shape, what he thinks we look like, to disarm us. But he's only ever seen us in spacesuits. He probably thinks that's what we are. He doesn't even realize there's a head inside our helmets. That's why he hasn't replicated it. Uh, I hate that idea. In all of recorded history, we've never made contact with a single alien species. Except for a microbe or two. What makes you think there's a shape-shifting alien spacesuit floating around out there? I saw it in his visor. There was intelligence there. It was like looking into the eye of a wild animal. He was trying to make sense of what he was seeing. Me, without a spacesuit, sitting in my ship. Him, outside, wondering why I don't look like the thing he thinks I should look like. I wonder if that's why he was watching Marcel in her cryosleep. Now he knows we're not what he thinks we are. Nope, nope, nuh-uh, we are not talking about this. This this is creepy as hell, I... I'm getting another drink. Me too. You, Crane, (laughs) you're shaking. Could it be you're not so skeptical after all? (laughs) This is the caffeine. I've had a lot of coffee today, is all. Sure. Mm Mm-hmm. I believe you. The subject of conversation shifted to more traditional ghost stories. The weeping woman of the Delta Nine station. The army of ghost children on the doomed space ranger. The many ghosts and ghouls of this planet and that. There were so many, and it truly was the perfect time of year for such stories. 
Ike retired to his ship long after the station lights had dimmed to indicate the night cycle. Even in space, respecting the circadian rhythm of one's ancestral home is necessary to function, as are the recorded sounds of birds chirping, frogs croaking, and the deep, inaudible but perceptible beat of a little blue and green planet that had long since been abandoned. Those were the things that kept a person grounded, despite being impossibly far from real, actual, solid ground. The following days were spent much like the previous. During the day cycle, the crews of the rescue ships practiced repairing the broken components until it became second nature, until they could do it with their eyes closed. In the evenings, they would drink and tell stories. Ike would always be seated nearby, visibly listening despite acting like he wasn't. Occasionally, he'd make a comment, but for the most part, he was a quiet observer. We're not quite sure why Ike did what he did the day the parts arrived. Perhaps it was jealousy, perhaps it was greed. Whatever the case, cameras captured him slipping away towards the brawny hull with a plasma knife in his hands. He surely told himself it was nothing personal as he lacerated the fuel line of the fastest ship in the fleet. It wouldn't be enough to permanently cripple the ship, but it was sure to cause a slight delay, enough that his own, if he rode fast and well enough, would reach the Katharina Research Station first, earning him the generous bonus that came with it. He then stood in waiting by his own ship, ready to receive the precious cargo. As a result, his was the first vessel out of the station that day, followed by three more in the coming hours, with the brawny hull leaving in dead last about a day and a half late. The gamma ray was bathed in an ocean of stars as it flew towards the river of darkness. They would be the last remnants of light the ship would see for the next week, if everything went according to plan. But, if everything had gone to plan, I would not be relaying this story now, would I? Captain, we are approaching the hollows. Please initiate cryosleep procedures. Ike stared into the approaching abyss, a hand cupped to his chin, wearing a pensive expression on his face. He examined his gauges, tapping on this one and that one, as though checking their accuracy. He then circled to the cryo-sleep chamber and examined it, too. <sighs> what a waste of money. It's a short trip to the research station. Why would I use so much liquid cryogen on nothing but a week-long journey? Liquid cryogen, the substance poured into cryo-sleep chambers to preserve their sleepers, was admittedly not cheap. The same amount was needed to fill the basin, regardless of whether you traveled for a week or a hundred years. So if one wanted to get the most bang for their buck, they'd save it for longer hauls. That frugal logic was what dictated Ike's decision. Computer, cancel cryosleep. Abe and his lackeys are only trying to scare me. They'll find I'm not so easily fooled. Cryosleep cancelled. Excellent. How long until we reach the hollows? T-minus 29 minutes and counting. Excellent. I have time to brew myself some tea and see this hollow for myself. He sat cross-legged on his captain's chair with a tumbler of tea in one hand. Ike did not look away as the ship crept ever closer to the darkness until it swallowed them whole.
The first two days of his journey were uneventful. His personal logs read as follows. Log 1. I confess myself a little disappointed by the banality of my first trip into the hollows. With the stories I've heard, I expected at least a feeling of dread. Instead, I listen to my music and sing to myself as my ship weaves through its guided path to the research station. Log 2. I thought I saw a bird outside today. (laughs) Trick of the mind, of course. My eyes want to see something other than darkness. I was listening to a delightful recording of a long extinct creature called a blue jay. I think that's why I saw it. It was black, not blue, like everything else out there. Log 3. I wonder how much gratitude the researchers will show when I arrive to save the day. Surely they'll offer a reward. Perhaps a good, home-cooked meal. Something other than the rations I took with me. These biscuits are so stale and dry they practically suck hydration out of me. I wouldn't be surprised if they were mummifying my insides. Log 4. I'm approaching 48 hours in the hollows now, and while I've seen no sign of the so-called empty astronaut... I can now see why this place is a magnet for spooky stories. Even in the safety of my ship, there's something isolating about the nothingness outside. I look forward to seeing the stars again. Maybe I'll enter cryosleep on the return trip. It might do me good to take a prolonged nap. (laughs) Log 5. Tomorrow is All Hallows' Eve, so I've placed a plastic jack-o'-lantern on the dashboard. They say it's supposed to ward off evil spirits. Hey, even I'm allowed a few superstitions. I'm going to bed now. Tomorrow I'll be halfway there. So far, so good. Ship and cargo are doing well. The jack-o'-lantern remained at its post throughout the rest of the trip. It may seem odd to care about an old folk tradition like Halloween so far removed from its origins, but some traditions endure the ages. Halloween, most of all, perhaps because even in space, the galaxy is filled with ghost stories. Stories Ike spent the day huddled under a blanket reading to pass the time. He was so enthralled, he didn't notice when a small, star-like dot of light appeared on the horizon. In a place where stars don't shine, it could only be one thing. Unknown object detected ahead. Possible collision imminent. I beg your pardon? Unknown object detected at the following coordinates. See heads up display. What, 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 what is that? Object unknown. How big is it? Size unknown. Is it moving? Velocity unknown. Is it the... The empty astronaut? Object unknown. Well, what do you know? I'm sorry, I did not understand that. Please repeat query. Oh, never you mind. Uh, uh, Computer, modify course to avoid object. Generating new course. New itinerary will add 1.902 hours to your trip. Do you accept? Yes. Changing course. The ship slowly turned until the speck of light disappeared from the heads-up display. Only then did Ike relax. Come, come, come. It must have been a fluke, or space debris. Uh, that's, that's all it was, debris. He stood from his chair and paced the cabin, periodically checking the portholes. They were coated in tendrils of dense blackness that seemed to pull light in. 
After a few minutes, he settled back down and resumed reading, this time with accompanying bird song. Unknown object detected sternside. Object is approaching rapidly. That's not possible. Are you certain it's not a ship? Could it be the brawny hull? Object unknown. Useless. Computer, show object on screen and use the telephoto zoom lens to magnify. Let's see what we're dealing with. Attempting to lock on to unknown object. Attempting. 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 Locked on. See the heads up display. (laughs) The screen displayed a blurry mess of an image. It was mostly dark, as one would expect from a feed showing the inside of the hollows. But for one point on the perceived horizon, even magnified, it was hard to make out the object barreling towards the gamma ray at faster than light speeds. But it was clearly neither a ship nor asteroid. It had an elongated rounded shape, the kind one rarely finds in space debris. If one squinted very hard and had a certain urban legend in mind, one might be able to imagine the outline of a human shape floating through space. Ike white-knuckled his captain's chair. It can't be. He he isn't real. Computer, change course again. Generating new course. New itinerary will add 5.10 hours to your trip. Do you accept? Yes, anything. Just get us away from him. Changing course. Ike looked to the screen and let out a gasp. The blurry, unknown object had gotten closer in the short time it had taken to interact with the ship's computer. Now, it was no longer a speck. It took up a fist-sized portion of the display. Just as he was about to manually adjust the focus, the ship changed courses, losing the unknown object from its sight. A ring, a rosy, a pocket full of posies. Unknown object detected on port side. What? What? No, no, that's not... Would you like me to show the object on screen? Yes. Attempting to lock on to unknown object. Attempting. Locked on. See the heads up display. Now he was sure. The object was closer still, and with its proximity came more clarity as to its shape. It looked like a man, and the darkness that usually seemed to swirl around in random patterns now appeared as though drawn towards him, or perhaps it was pushing him forward. Ike screamed. Ah! Computer, accelerate! Get us out of here now! Accelerating to 5 FTL. Ike looked away for one second to check the fuel gauge, and when he looked up, the astronaut was no longer in view. Computer, where did he go? I'm sorry, I did not understand that. Please repeat query. (laughs) Where is the unknown object? Scanning now. Scanning now. Scanning now. Unknown object is on the starboard side. Go faster, go faster! Accelerating to 6 FTL. The engines roared to life as the ship increased its speed. However, according to the readings, whatever was in pursuit was able to match and exceed the gamma ray's speeds. The ship's computer was tracking its movements closely, and the data it recorded was so incredible, analysts later deemed it an error and blamed the faulty old ship for providing corrupted data. 
The computer attempted to lock onto the object again, but it was dodging its sights with inhuman precision. While Ike cowered, the computer caught only glimpses of an old model spacesuit which drew ever closer with every sweep of the cameras. Suddenly there was a thud heard under the ship. Unknown life form detected. Oh no, 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 no! Shake it off, dammit! Shake it off! The gamma ray did a barrel roll, but the maneuver did little to help. Whatever had latched onto the hull was holding on with frightening strength. The microphone picked up the sounds of steps walking along the bottom of the ship until the front cameras finally caught a hand stretching out from under it and slowly pulling the empty astronaut up to Ike's level. Ike could see him clearly now, both in the live feed and through the window. Ike looked trapped in himself in a state of complete shock as the strange astronaut crawled up the nose of the ship all the way to the window. This isn't real, this isn't real, this isn't real. <laughs> Computer, how long until we exit the hollows? T-minus four days and 8.9 hours until arrival at the Katharina Research Station. <laughs> How long if we turn around? T minus three days and 4.56 hours until arrival at the Tarry Union Station. I can't, I can't, I can't. The empty astronaut came practically face to face with Ike. Even though the window was one-sided, Ike felt as though it was staring right at him. The astronaut slapped the window twice, both times making Ike flinch. A computer, do something! The ship banked hard, and the astronaut's head was knocked back. He was almost unfazed, but his star visor had been flipped up by the sudden jerk. This is the only clear recorded footage you can find of what was inside the empty astronaut's suit. And like the legends say... There was nothing behind the visor. There was only a chasm of emptiness all the way through to the oxygen valves at the very back of the helmet. Even looking at the footage of it is an unsettling feeling in and of itself. So one can only imagine what Ike felt like in that moment as the empty astronaut, the one without a head, reared its arm back, balled its hand, and slammed its fist against the window in a very deliberate movement, a movement that was impossible to attribute to solar winds or a, a blip in gravity or mere momentum. The headless astronaut had actively moved. Ike screamed. The empty astronaut's head broke eyeless to eye contact from Ike and ever so slowly lifted towards the top of the ship. What are you doing? What are you looking at? The empty astronaut began to crawl up the windshield and with great horror, Ike realized exactly where it was headed. You could see the exact moment he connected the dots as it was written over his already terrified face. This was a different kind of fear, an agonizing helplessness wrapped around his throat like a hangman's noose. The empty astronaut was headed for the entrance hatch. Cameras captured the headless astronaut slowly, methodically, and deliberately creeping along the head of the ship in search of the latch. All the while, Ike was shouting commands at the computer. 
Bank left. Bank right. Roll. Slow down. Accelerate. Every desperate order was followed to the best of the ship's ability, but there was no shaking the intruder and no slowing it down. The empty astronaut finally grabbed hold of the latch. Ike's voice was panicky as he interacted with the ship's computer one more time, a glimmer of fearful hope in his eyes. Computer, repair for fuel burst. I'm sorry, I did not understand that. Please repeat command. Computer, prepare for fuel burst. Acknowledged. Fuel burst requested. Please note that our fuel burst will void the ship's extended warranty. Please ensure you have read and understood the terms of service before moving forward. Say, read terms of service for the terms of service, or I accept the terms of service to proceed. Yes, yes, go, just now, go, go, uh, uh, I accept the terms of service. Understood. Preparing fuel burst. Please enter destination in your control console. For the few unaware, a fuel burst is a last-ditch effort where a ship fires all its remaining fuel in all its engines at once to quickly jump forward. It's a dangerous maneuver, unruly, as it's hard to steer, and has a high probability of causing damage to the engines. It's only employed in the most dire of circumstances in order to quickly get out of a dangerous situation. Furthermore, if you are unable to immobilize your ship once the burst is complete, momentum will cause your ship to veer off course, making it harder for rescue operations. In this case, Ike was aiming for the other side of the hollows, betting that he could jump just short of the Katharina Research Station. But Ike Crane was not the best pilot, and the Gamma Ray was not the most reliable ship. There is a sound in the last moments of the Gamma Ray's recordings. A noise suspiciously like that of the top hatch of the ship slowly squeaking open into the decompression chamber as though by force. The kind of noise you never want to hear unless you have a crewmate outside. And then there's Ike's voice. No, 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 please, no, please don't go. Initiating fuel burst. The audio and video feeds cut here, but the ship's systems recorded a successful fuel burst. Ike, with or without the empty astronaut in tow, would have shot through space as fast as the Gamma Ray's engines could go. Whether his ship made it through to the other side of the hollows, we can never be certain. What we do know is that he traveled close enough to the Katharina Research Station for his ship to send an automatic info dump of logs, surveillance footage, and general telemetry. He was so close to safety, to a place with a few dozen souls that could have come to his aid. We don't know if he was lost in the hollows themselves or drifted off course, cursed to freefall through unmapped, uninhabited space for all eternity. All we know is that Ike Crane and his ship are now one of thousands that have gone missing while traveling the hollows. As for the Katharina Research Station, the brawny hull arrived a day or so later and was able to aid them in repairs. The station is still operational to this day and has made leaps and strides analyzing the hollows. Maybe one day... 
its secrets will be revealed. So, I suppose I'm intended to record some kind of, of outro? A goodbye of sorts? A bitter farewell to listeners of the No Sleep Podcast? Hmm. I'll need to think on that. Maybe email David for some direction. It just feels weird, I suppose. Like I'm delivering my last words. In early 2017, I reached out to beloved documentarian and voiceover star Forsyth Mercer about potentially guest hosting an episode of the podcast. I never heard back. Then, on October 1st, 2021, I received Mercer's hosting recording, which you've just heard, via an email address I didn't recognize. To my knowledge, Forsyth Mercer was never provided with any of the stories in this episode and yet knew exactly how to introduce them and in the running order we'd intended. Furthermore, the metadata of the file indicated that it was recorded in April 2017, a couple of months after I emailed Mr. Mercer. None of the stories in this episode even existed in April 2017. But metadata can be wrong, I guess. I'm very grateful that Forsyth Mercer eventually took me up on my offer to guest host from over four years ago. I must admit that I'm surprised, though. First, there's the strangeness I've already outlined. And then there's the fact that Forsyth Mercer quite famously disappeared while filming a documentary on location in May 2017 in a small lost village named Gold Meadow.